This is JDSA's Law Talk. This is the program that gives you the straight facts on our laws and how they affect your everyday personal and professional life. Social media, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, Snapchat, and of course, Instagram. At first, it was all about kid pics, food snaps, and selfies, but then it evolved into something more. A town square for social advocacy, a billboard and a broadcast commercial, a shopping mall for millennials, and others. Hate it or love it, you can't deny that a lot of business happens on social media. And for those seeking revenue on the gram, well, most are accidental business people. Folks without MBAs, law degrees, or briefcases. Society has dubbed these accidental business people influencers. And you can spot them by their large social media following, desire for authenticity, and talent for storytelling. But what if you are that accidental business person? How do you survive and thrive in that world, especially when the person across from you is an intentional business person, someone who's working for a large corporation with a lot of resources? Can you negotiate the contract they want you to sign? How do you protect your best interests? What's your legal exposure? And how do you limit that exposure? In this special feature of JDSA's Law Talk, attorney Annie Robertson is here as we demystify business on the gram. Annie, I have to tell you, I'm super excited for this conversation. Thanks. Whether you're someone who is a social media influencer or someone who's just interested in taking a peek behind that curtain, I think this conversation is going to be really, really illuminating. So usually when we have our JDSA's Law Talk, we start off with the basics. But today's topic, let's just jump in both feet first. Let's set the groundwork. So set the stage for us. Who's involved in businesses on social media and what exactly are their roles? Okay, yes, let's jump right in. As you mentioned, social media has evolved over time. And in our consumption-based economy, part of that evolution has been the rise of a powerful new advertising venue and marketplace all rolled into one. So you've got businesses that are advertising on social media, and then you've got features where you can swipe up and go immediately to their web pages and buy something. And the players within this venue are called the followers, the influencers, and, of course, the businesses themselves. Okay, so followers, businesses, influencers. Let's unpack this for the listeners. Let's start with the followers. Sure. Okay, so followers, which is a horrible name if you're, like me, a (laughs) follower. (laughs) Basically, it just means that you follow other people on social media. You're an ordinary person, and there are things on there that interest you, so you follow other people and observe what they're doing. Sure. Now let's talk about the businesses. Okay, well, there's a lot of business on social media. Sure. um, Especially the types of businesses that deem themselves lifestyle brands or focus on brand-driven storytelling. These are companies like Red Bull or Adidas. They're aggressively interested in pursuing their own story or mythology. They're creating a story around themselves. Exactly. There's also smaller businesses that aren't quite of the name recognition level as Red Bull. You've got sole proprietors out there who have just a single product line and they're content with that. Maybe it's a custom-made jewelry or some custom-made apparel. And then you've also got startups who aspire to someday be really big businesses. And startups are often a lot leaner and meaner than the big companies. And those types of companies that, that can be small and lean know that social media is the best place to be advertising And also collecting information that you can use in your business. You can Um, be really nimble. We're not talking about an aircraft carrier here. You're 
a speedboat, you can navigate those waters really, really easily. Yeah. Right. And you're going to see a lot more of the speedboats <laughs> on social media, not over the naval aircraft carriers, just because those sorts of businesses are businesses that sell to businesses. But you're going to see on social media the businesses that sell to consumers. So the, the companies that got the tennis shoes or the coat that you want to buy or the backpack, um, you're not going to see the, the naval aircraft carrier. And now we come to the accidental business people, the influencers. And you mentioned to me off the air that you know a lot of influencers who actually hate that term, right? I do. I do. In fact, my little sister is an influencer and she would hate that I'm calling influencers <laughs> that. But in my defense, I asked her what's a better word, just one word, and she, and everything was three or four words long. So right. I'm going to use influencers here, but I do apologize. I know a lot of you don't like that term. It's a common term. We're going to use it. So when we talk about influencers, then what are we talking about? Okay, so oftentimes an influencer is somebody who started out as a follower. They've never intended to become an influencer. Now, of course, now that people see the revenue generating power that an influencer can have, you're having a lot of more people come in that are intentionally trying to be influencers. Sure. But as short as five years ago, people who became influencers weren't actually intending to become influencers. They were just followers posting pictures of themselves. On they were people media. having fun. Yes, definitely. Um, so, you know, maybe it would be somebody who's just making posts about their lifestyle or their hobbies or something that they're passionate about. Maybe it's a mom who does clips of her workout videos that she does with her kids. It could be someone like a young woman who has really great style and attends festivals and tries to skateboard. And she looks really good in, in the latest clothing line that companies are putting out there. She could rise to the level of an influencer. Maybe it's a professional athlete. Oftentimes, alternative athletes do a lot more over the gram than you see uh, like a football player. So you'll see professional rock climbers, skateboarders, parkour athletes, that sort of thing. Some people are on there because they travel a lot to beautiful locations and followers are attracted to that and want to live vicariously through that. I've also, you know, seen influencers that are families living out of a van on a perpetual road trip, people who cook great food, maybe within a dietary restriction that is popular, gluten-free, paleo, you name it. Maybe they are just someone who strikes beautiful yoga poses in beautiful locations. So it sounds to me, zooming out on the 30,000-foot level, that when you're talking about an influencer, you're talking about someone who is being authentic who is sharing their truth and their life, and it happens to be something that resonates with people, and it has a snowball effect, and one day you might wake up and look and say, wow, 100,000 followers? Exactly. Influencers, to me, are masters of storytelling. A lot of people think of social media as these short burst stories, five, 10 second longs. You have to make it interesting within five or 10 seconds. I actually think it's one of the longest forms of storytelling that we have. Really? Right. So an influencer is going to be very active on social media. That's something that keeps them relevant, keeps them having a lot of followers, which is how they have their power as an influencer. Sure. So they're going to be making daily posts about their lives. And you might only watch 30 seconds of those posts a day, but if you followed someone for a year, two years, three years, five years, you feel like you've seen their life story roll out. You feel you feel invested in their story. It becomes part of your story. Yes. Yes, definitely. And then it follows that businesses might be looking at that and they want to make themselves part of that story. Yes. So that 
you know, brings us to the next part of the process, and that's how the businesses and the influencers work together. So you got XYZ business sliding into your DM saying, hi, how you doing? <laughs> how do you respond? Exactly. They're going to hit you up, ask you what your shout out rates are, slide into your DMs. So the businesses that know about social media influencers, uh, what is their ultimate gain then? What do they want to do? Well, an influencer can increase the goodwill that's associated with a certain brand. Let's say you're Adidas. You've got an influencer who's a professional rock climber. They're posting these beautiful pictures of them in remote locations wearing your clothing and your climbing shoes. Well, all of the people that follow that influencer are going to associate what that influencer is doing in that photo with your brand. So it increases the goodwill that people associate with Adidas to see that picture. The influencer's product, even if they didn't originally intend it to be that way, but the influencer's product is their authenticity. And the cred that you could lend to that particular brand, right? Yes, yes, exactly. So if, like you said, if you're XYZ mountain climbing company and you have a mountain climber that has 500,000 follows on Instagram, you want to hook up with that person because that ends an air of legitimacy to your company. Right. And an Alpine Gear company would be very happy to see an influencer with 500,000 <laughs> followers. That's a lot. I'm just throwing it out there. For climbing. Um, all right. So, so a couple of ways that they work together. Yes. Influencers might be paid to just make a single post, and that's what we call shout-out rate. What's your shout-out rate for making this single post? Or they might be paid to make a series of posts. They might be paid to be a brand ambassador or to be sponsored by a brand, which is a longer-term relationship that can go on for a year or more in length. Ooh. Sometimes the the business and the influencer will partner together and do a sweepstakes or a challenge for a, a week or a two in duration. Okay, so let's focus on partnerships for right now. Um, we'll get into detail on the other things in just a bit, but as far as partnerships are concerned, if you are an influencer and a business approaches you about a partnership or a partner up, what does that look like? What should, influ what should an influencer consider? Okay, well, first of all, most important, when a business is approaching an influencer, the influencer needs to be aware about an imbalance that's going on. There's going to be an imbalance in experience and information and financial resources with that balance weighing in favor of the business. Oftentimes, businesses are run by people who have MBAs or advanced degrees and lots of business experience. They have repeated negotiations. They know how to understand complex contractual provisions. They have in-house legal departments and maybe even brand name law firms on call behind the legal departments as backstop. On the other side of the table, there's the influencer. Often it's just a one-person shop with a focus on something entirely separated from things like stockholders and spreadsheets. Exactly. You're just trying to tell your story. And so is there a ton of information available online for that influencer, or is it more geared towards that business? It's as you guess. There's a lot more geared towards businesses. Just Google social media influencers and lifestyle brands, and you'll be hit with loads of information directed to the businesses. That makes sense. Businesses have a lot of money to spend on people right. who provide services to business. So the people writing the information out there are targeting the businesses. 
But there's not a lot of information out there that tells an influencer, how do you negotiate a deal? How do you read a contract? Is it even okay for you to ask for that? Or is that, are you just way out in outer space asking for something like that? That's one of the things I'm trying to accomplish with this podcast is to put a bit more information out there for the influencers. Well, and I have to assume with all the conversations that you have with those influencers out there, there is a lot of education that needs to be done for these influencers to make sure that they're put in the best position. Definitely. Okay, so let's talk about that imbalance here that you're trying to even up. The business has more experience, more information, more money, and probably more MBAs. So (laughs) how does that influencer combat that sort of imbalance? Great question. And of course, there's not a one-size-fits-all answer to that question. Of course. But that said, there's a, there's a number of things that an influencer can consider. Let's call them tips. I okay. like top 10 lists. I don't quite have 10 here, but let's just <laughs> run through a few. Let's do it. <laughs> First of all, influencers, you need to know your strengths. While money and experience are imbalanced, you as an influencer are going to have a lot more power that flows from your community of followers. That is, you're going to have more followers or different followers or a different and more personal relationship with your followers than that business does. And that's not something that the business can easily replicate. Know your worth is essentially is what you're saying. Know your strengths. Know your strengths. You may not have as much experience, but you've got a powerful audience behind you. And that's why the business is approaching you and wanting to partner with you in the first place. They already know your strength. You've got to know it too. Okay, tip number two. Have confidence in yourself and your ability to understand a business transaction or a contract. So what if you didn't get an MBA from an Ivy League school? Some of the best business people in the world don't have high school degrees. In fact, some of the very best business people in the world are operating lucrative businesses out of prison yards. <laughs> no, come on. Dealing in, yes, dealing in substances and contraband. I'm not kidding. They're very good at business, and there are things that a professional business person could learn from them. All right, so apparently I have to brush up on the wire again. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is we all became business people when our ancestors started bartering with shells, beads, and grains. And if any of us had to start a business and run a business to feed ourselves, we could figure out how to do that. You know, that brings up a question that I have. When you say have confidence in yourself, how many times do you have to counsel people who tell you, but I just run this. Like they have, they undervalue what they bring to the table. Like you said, they bring something unique and special that these businesses want. Right. And a lot of influencers have followers because they are confident and people are attracted to that. I'm speaking to a different type of confidence here. The confidence that you, whoever you are, whatever your background is, you can understand the business still. You can negotiate in the business still. You can understand the contract. A lot of people I find aren't even reading the contract because they don't think they can understand it. Or they think if they could understand it, they couldn't negotiate it anyways. They just take it or leave it. Read the contract. (laughs) Read the contract. Don't not read the contract. That's your biggest mistake. And if you read the contract, you don't understand something in it, you have questions, ask someone that you know. Google is your friend. (laughs) Exactly. Or maybe do an online search. Is there a dictionary that you can use? Definitely. So you're going to see words and contracts that make no sense to you, hopefully, unless you have a very boring job (laughs) like I do. But uh, if if you don't, you're going to hear words like indemnification and disparagement. And you need to know what those mean. So you could either ask someone or you could go online and look them up. If you do that, I'd recommend you go to thelawdictionary.org. 
that has Black's Law Dictionary, which is what lawyers use when we don't know a term and we go to look something up. Okay. And it's free. Law Dictionary, the law dictionary <laughs> dot org. Um, have, hashtag not sponsored by that. Right. Exactly. Thank you. Uh, what's tip number three? Okay. Show up prepared. Again, do some online research. Learn what that company's up to before you walk into a meeting or jump on a phone call with somebody at the business. That can actually stop a potential partnership before it starts if you know that they're into something that doesn't align with your values or your brand. Yes, that is definitely a, a good point. You want to make sure that you are partnering with a brand that also represents you. Just like we talked earlier about how you increase the brand's goodwill. Well, the brand can also increase your goodwill or more often than not, what you see is the brand can decrease it a bit because it's the type of company at the end of the day, once you learn more about them, you don't want to be associated with. So do some research on the company for that reason. And also so that you can walk into your meetings or get on your call knowing about the company. That's going to impress them. They're going to think that you're smart and that you're conscientious. They're going to want to work with you. And when you request, you know, a higher dollar amount, they're going to take that seriously. What other tips here before we go to tip number four on this are in the realm of the obvious, but we got to say it anyway. Right. Okay. So show up to your meetings and take your calls on time. Don't cancel last minute without a good reason. Treat business people like their time is just as important as your time. And the reason for that is you want to start out on the right foot. You don't want to lose points over something that's as easy as showing up on time or answering your phone when it rings. So, you know, I, I hate to say it because it is so obvious, but it does go a long way. It's a relationship, right? Right. You wouldn't want to show up 30 minutes late without an explanation to your first date. Same type of thing here. Exactly. Okay. So oh, are we on to four now? Let's do four. Okay. Number four. And this goes back to having confidence in yourself and knowing your strengths. You also have to advocate for yourself. What does that mean? That means you have to stick up for yourself. And oh. if you think you are worth a higher amount or you think that the company should let you do this and not require exclusivity, then you need to stick up for yourself. You can't count on somebody else to have your best interests in mind when they're sitting on the other side of the table from you. They're going to have their best interests in mind. And oftentimes your best interests and their best interests can coexist, but sometimes they don't. So advocate for yourself. Don't just expect them to do the right thing. Hold it, them to it. It's not a bad thing for you to look out for your best interests in this situation. Definitely. Okay, so what's tip number five? This one's a good one. Find good mentors. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Better, easier said than done sometimes. It is easier said than done. But, you know, if you work with a business, you respect the people at that business that you're interacting with, maybe invite one to coffee. And when you're at coffee, maybe they, if they're in the marketing department, you can ask them for some tips on how to grow your personal brand. What about those in the online community? Have you ever seen other influencers be receptive to helping out folks that have questions at all? Definitely. So if you're an influencer, befriend other influencers by all means. Even if they're in remote locations, there are chat groups and different ways that you can slowly build a friendship. And ask them what their experience has been working for a particular business or addressing a particular issue that you're confronting. You know, one thing I just wanted to go back for a second to networking with the business people that you interact with as well. That is something that business people are doing all of the time. They network with each other and they mentor each other and they provide mentorship all the time. 
and they seek mentorship as well. It opens doors and it just expands your knowledge base. If someone's been in business 10 years, they have a lot to say that you could learn from. So collect information with online with your online searches, but also collect it from the people that you have the privilege to interact with. A wealth of information from your colleagues or folks that could be your colleagues. So make sure you seek that out, essentially. What could be tip number six? Number six. Okay. I think we already talked about this a little bit. We talked about doing due diligence on the business and making sure that it's somebody you want to align your brand with. But it's so important we should mention it twice, right? It definitely is. (laughs) Um, You can do a lot of that, as you mentioned, just with a Google search. If that business holds a license, you can call the regulatory body that issues that license to them and ask if the business has any fractions. Some of those regulatory bodies will publish that sort of information online. Some will just take it and give it to you over a phone call. You can search that business's name on the Secretary of State's database in the state where the business was formed. For a lot of businesses, that's either the state that they operate out of, where they have their headquarters, or maybe it's Delaware. And if it's not one of those two, (laughs) (laughs) you have 48 other states to to go search for. Um, If the business is publicly traded, then you can get a wealth of information over the SEC's website. That's the Securities and Exchange Commission. Thank you for the alphabet soup there, Securities and Exchange Commission. Yes, and the company itself on their own web page will have, oftentimes they'll have an investor relations tab. And if you go to that page, the same information that you could find on the Security and Exchange Commission's website will be located on the company's website. So do your due diligence on the company. Make sure it's somebody you want to partner with and And the more you know about the company, even if you decide, yes, I definitely want to partner with them, the more you know about them has value because it helps you in negotiations. Talking with our featured attorney, Annie Robertson, in our JDSA's Law Talk on business on the gram, social media influencers, and how to influence getting your best deal. So let's talk about making those deals. So influencers, brands, they're making deals. How exactly does that play out. I have to imagine there's a good bit of negotiation involved. Yes, there's typically some back and forth, what you call negotiation, followed by reaching an oral agreement, followed by capturing that oral agreement in a written contract. And then the last step is to actually perform the contract. Okay. So the first step is negotiation. And I know that's a of interest to a lot of influencers. So let's dive right into that. Let's do it. All right. So influencers, I'm sorry to say it, but you've just got to learn to negotiate, at least until you can afford a manager or a business attorney. Even then, some things are going to sound better and carry more weight coming directly out of your own mouth. So how do you do that? How do you get better at negotiation if you've never done it before in your life? Right. Well, it's a practice skill. It's a lot like public speaking or math. You might think you're bad at it or you don't have the aptitude for it. But what that really means is that you haven't had as much chance to practice it as you need. It's a muscle, right? It's a muscle. Or maybe you just haven't had it explained to you in a way that resonates. Maybe you think only certain people are suited for negotiation and that you yourself are not one of those people. But just like public speaking or math, the more you do it, the better you're going to get. And the more you do it, the more you're going to realize that you do have some natural traits that really help you out. Okay, so Annie, help me out here. When you're looking to become a successful negotiator, what's the very first step you need to take? There's not a playbook. (laughs) But what I would say is do a little bit of self-assessment. Okay. Ask your friends and your family if you 
have a job, your coworkers, what, in what ways are you an effective communicator? And in what ways could you do better? And hopefully that person that you're asking understands that part of communication is also listening because that's going to be key. And you have to imagine that's probably really smart because you don't know about your blind spots until someone tells you about them because they are a blind spot, right? Right, right. And that's not to say that you can't do a little of your own self-assessment. You probably know if you're a shy person or a timid person or a boisterous and outgoing person. So you probably can do a bit of that on your own. It helps to ask friends and family because they can, as you said, clue you into your blind spots that you shield yourself from. Okay, Annie, let's play a little make-believe here, a little role-playing. Take me through some totally fictitious self-assessments here. Okay, so let's start with a lady named Jane. All right, Jane. So Jane prides herself on always having been very good at listening to people and observing and reading people. Good job, Jane. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she's the friend we all want to have. When she's in negotiations, she's she's really good at listening to people. She makes sure she's 100% in the moment, and she's really also very good at setting aside her own lens and looking at things through the other person's lens. That's to say she's not as biased by her own life and her own experiences when she hears and observes things. She's seen them without emotion. So she can she has the ability to step outside herself to listen and to look critically at a situation. Exactly. Okay. So that's a natural trait that she has that's going to serve her really well in negotiations. She'll be sitting there. She'll be observing people. She'll be able to read their tell, to I- borrow a term from poker. She'll anticipate their next move. All good things, but I feel like there's a but coming up here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, let's get through her strengths. Okay, we'll get okay. To her weaknesses. Strengths still. She has a few more strengths, okay? okay? Okay. So she's really good at seeing middle grounds and solutions to problems, and that will also serve her well in negotiation. It's kind of the flip side of the coin of being a good listener and, and reading people. You know what it is they want, and you, you already know what you want, and you know what they want, and you're able to kind of see the point that's in the middle. Sure. But, okay, now to the but. Jane's major weakness is that she's soft-spoken. And she has a very uh, humble demeanor, and she has a lot of nerves. She gets very nervous speaking in front of people. When she does speak, she's got great ideas and smart contributions. But she speaks quietly, and sometimes people don't even hear those great points that she's making. So let's, what should she do? <laughs> if right. you're Jane, what should you do? Well, one thing you can do is bring a more aggressive person or a person with more of a presence to the meeting with you. And that's a great idea. If you have someone like that that you trust and that you can bring into the meeting as your advocate, if you don't have that, then maybe you can train yourself to use your silence in a more powerful way. Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) Verbal judo we're talking about here. What do you mean by using silence to your benefit? Yes. Well, the Japanese are masters of this. They pause for a long time before they speak. And when you see them in negotiations with Americans, it really throws Americans off their footing because Americans always want to fill in that empty space. So if you know that you're shy and timid, it's hard for you to speak, just pause a bit before you speak. Draw the attention of the room to you. You don't have to say a lot if you're not a great speaker. When you speak, it will carry more weight. So those are all things that Jane can do to use her natural attributes to her benefit in negotiations. She should just really focus in on listening and observing and thinking of those solutions that she's great at and then 
speaking slowly and carefully with pauses and making sure that the room goes quiet and listens before she speaks in her quieter voice. Are all negotiations typically verbal or is the written word, does that have a place in here somewhere? Definitely. So let's say Jane knows she's a much better in a pen and paper than she is right. out loud. Well, then maybe she can do some of the preliminary negotiations back and forth over email. Okay. That well, definitely, if you're good at writing, let that be the crutch that you use in negotiations. It's a strength. So why not use it? Exactly. But I do want to caveat that and say think very carefully about what you put into writing because anything that you put in writing can end up in court one day. And God forbid that should ever happen to you. But I, every email that I write, I think of how would this look if it was publicly available to everybody else? Really because good advice. <laughs> Absolutely. So definitely write. Um, you'll find that business people and lawyers, when they write emails, oftentimes are purposefully vague or expressing ideas without committing to, to a firm point. Those are traits that you can use if you're good at writing and okay. you want to negotiate in writing. So we have Jane, the quiet, great listener, critical thinking master who prefers to write out an email once in a while. How about our next example? Yeah, so let's take kind of the counter example. Let's do it. And let's call this person Alex. All right, Alex. So Alex is a tall, muscular woman. She's got big hands. She's got a loud, booming voice. When she speaks, she does it without prompting, and everybody in the room just listens because she already had their attention. Alex enjoys public speaking, and she does her best thinking and speaking under pressure. So negotiations are going to be great for her. She's going to be doing her best thinking under pressure, and she's already got the presence of the room without having to put any effort into that. But she's got one major weakness, just like Jane did, and that's self-control. Alex gets angry really quickly, or she gets emotional. She's easily riled. So if Alex was negotiating with someone like Jane, Jane might intentionally rile Alex just to see what she'll say, right? Because Alex can't match Jane in terms of observing and pausing. And Jane can't ma match Alex in terms of commanding the room and the presence. So th those two people can negotiate together. So what can Alex do to work on her weakness. Well, Alex should also practice pausing before she speaks. She should practice speaking slower and pausing more to make sure she's really wanting to say what she's saying. She should train herself, always make an intentional effort to be the last person in that room or on that call to react to something. Let the other person react first, Alex, because you're the person who's inclined to always be the first reactor. So you've just got to train yourself to not do that anymore. If you're getting too upset, take deep breaths, close your eyes, whatever works for you. You can even end the call and say, let's return to this later or walk out of the room, say, I need to take a break in order to compose yourself. But what you don't want to do is start reacting out of your emotions or out of your anger. Okay, so we talked about basically the two polar opposites in negotiation styles here. But simply put, we're simply talking about communicating well together, right? Or effective communication. Effective communication, it's, it, you know, you think of communicating well as something you do in a relationship because you want your partner to understand you and where you're coming from. And you also want to understand your partner so that you can have this harmonious relationship. Well, in negotiations... A lot of that is going to translate into negotiations, but the difference is 
it's not this long-term relationship where you want to make sure you're always pleasing that person. Not that you want to let your business partners down, but it's a shorter-term relationship and there shouldn't be as much emotion in it. We're talking about usually money or titles or things that are not not as emotional. Okay. You said something earlier that I want to come back to. I think some people have the misperception that negotiation is all about getting your point across and letting that person know. And negotiation is every bit as much about listening. <laughs> that's great. I mean, that's goes back to the Japanese when they negotiate with the Americans. That works to the advantage of the Japanese because the Americans come in with the perspective of I am going to win my point by making it really loudly and clearly known. <laughs> and the Japanese come into negotiations and think, I'm going to win my point by being very patient and slow and quiet and learning what it is they really want before I even tell them what it is that I want. Now, I'm using gross stereotypes here. But of course. (laughs) Of course, there are Americans that are near the other side of the spectrum and Japanese people that are near the American side of the spectrum. I'm just, you know, trying to give some examples. But the point is, you don't have to be some brash, big talker to be a winner at negotiations. You can be a, and I'm using air quotes here, a Jane and be just as effective. Yes, definitely. If you know your weaknesses and you know how to manage them and you know your strengths and you know how to play them and you know when to play them. And I think that last part, timing, is very, very important. And you're not going to be great at timing right out of the gate. But again, practice it and you'll learn when to play your cards. It's a skill that poker players use. It's a skill that you can learn in negotiations. And something I always like to say, if there's a really important decision that you have to make, sleep on it. Um, You don't have to, in that moment, make the decision. If the person on the other side of the table from you is reasonable and fair, they're going to let you take as long as you need to make important decisions. And this segues into what I was going to get into next, which are those additional negotiating tips beyond the broad strokes that we did. So what else would you suggest to folks who are heading into a possible negotiation? Okay, well, so these are some easier ones. Uh, let's say low-hanging fruit. Okay. Um, <laughs> make sure you're physically comfortable. Make sure your clothes fit. They're not your waistband isn't cutting into your waist. You haven't had a huge lunch. Uh, make sure the room's a comfortable temperature. And if you're on the phone, make sure you can clearly hear on your phone. And if you can get a hands-free device so that you're not starting to wear out holding that phone to your ear or your voice is getting hoarse shouting into your speakerphone, that's probably best. Before you start to negotiate, eat something and drink something. Probably not a huge meal because you need to be thinking clearly and the blood needs to be flowing. But don't be hangry. Exactly. (laughs) You don't want to be distracted by the fact that you're hungry or thirsty or having to use the restroom. So just take care of your basic needs. Okay. What about... Is patience something that we should think about here? About uh, we can't expect this to be done lickety split, right? A hundred percent patience is a great skill to develop to be good at negotiations. Be patient. Don't put yourself under a time pressure and try to outlast the other side. So don't schedule meetings right after the negotiation. Leave an hour longer than you think it's going to take open so that you can be there a long time and you're not feeling rushed to wrap it up and get out the door. You mentioned just a little bit earlier about the necessity to sleep on it 
if you're looking at a big decision, and that people who negotiate in good faith will recognize that and will respect that. So following from that, what are some common tactics that maybe you need to keep an eye out on where if you see that or hear that happening, little alarm bell should be going off in your brain? Okay, so you said the first alarm bell, and that is if they're pressuring you to make a decision right now, this opportunity won't be here in an hour. It won't be here tomorrow. Every day it's going to go down by X dollars. Mm -hmm. That should be a red flag. That means you're across the table from somebody who isn't reasonable and fair. Now, you might still end up doing business with them. I'm not saying you shouldn't because there's one red flag, but keep it on your radar. Another common tactic that you should be watching out for is if you're across the table or on the phone with someone who keeps saying, okay, they negotiate a whole bunch of points with you. And then I say, okay, but I don't really have authority to approve that. So let me go circle around with the team and we'll get back to you on that. You know, that might be a tactic and it might not. But what you should do is say, okay, let's pick up this conversation again when the person who can make those decisions and trade these points is on the phone. Great point. Definitely watch out if the person is really intimidating to you, calling you names, um, standing over you while you sit, threatening you. That's probably a red flag where you should just not do the deal if there's any way you don't have to. I mean, that type of a person, especially if they're the person who's going to be working directly with you isn't going to be any different when you're working together. So if they're like that at the start of the deal, you can expect that they'll be like that throughout the relationship. Well, probably worse. I mean, you're not in a situation, they don't have your services yet. So you can almost assume that you're getting the best possible version of that person standing across from you. So if they're like that already, good gravy. Is that a person that you want to be in business with? Exactly. Okay. And one more thing. I'll just throw out one more thing to watch out for. Don't negotiate things piecemeal. And what do you mean by that? Trade things once all of the points are on the table. Make sure you've said all of the points that you want to get out there and that they've had a chance to say all of the points that they want to get out there before you start giving away your points. And trade points for points. Don't trade your points away and then, you know, ask them about their points afterwards. They're not going to be as inclined to compromise on the things they want if you've already agreed to giving away things that you had to give. So make sure everybody's cards are on the table before you start swapping them back and forth. Yes. How about letting things get personal? I imagine that has to be so hard if you're so personally invested in your brand and they say something that gets your hackles up. Don't let it, right? Right. You know, that goes back to Alex and how she needs to take deep breaths or sleep on it or take a break and come back to it. Be calm. And if you're too emotional, just say, I'm too emotional right now. Let's talk about this tomorrow and give yourself a chance to calm down before you start making decisions. Okay. so what else do you need to be armed with mentally as you walk into that negotiation? Okay, so you should walk in there knowing as much as you can about the other side. We already talked about that earlier, doing your due diligence on the business. You definitely want to walk into negotiations knowing a lot about them. You also need to walk in there knowing what your BATNA is, and that is a dorky term for your (laughs) best alternative to a negotiated agreement. So if this deal doesn't happen, what are you going to do? Do you really need this $50,000 sponsorship to pay rent next month, or could you maybe do a whole bunch of shout outs instead. 
you really want the $50,000 sponsorship. That's a much easier way to earn your bread and butter. But you should have a plan B lined up so that when you get in that room and the person's pounding the table and really rude to you and they won't come up to the price that you want, you can walk away. You've got to be able to walk away. And if you walk in there without any sort of alternative in mind, it's going to be really hard to walk away. Because that is really the best and in some cases the only true hammer that you have. It's definitely a powerful device. So now let's move to next steps. Let's say you were able to negotiate a deal. You read a deal. What do you do next? So now you've got to reduce that deal to the dreaded word, a contract. <laughs> okay. I know, I know contracts are tough. I've read tens of thousands of pages of contracts every year for more than a decade now. So I understand that they're pretty boring, but there's a lot of substance in them. Even with everything that I've seen and done to date, there are still things I can learn. And if I'd been doing this 30 years and I was the very best in my field, there would still be things I could learn about contracts. So they're tough. I get it. But if it's important to the deal, you've got to have one. If you can afford an attorney, then maybe they can help you take some of that load off your shoulders. But if you can't, don't worry, because I'm going to give you a few tips right now. That's why we're here. So let's start with tip number one on contracts. Okay, the number one rule with contracts is to read them. Even if you don't know all the words, that's what Google's there for. <laughs> yes, read them. Read them twice if you have to. Uh, maybe it'll help you fall asleep at night. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but definitely read them. Number two, make sure the numbers are right. Break out that calculator. Always double check the numbers. Always triple check the numbers. Even if you don't read the contract, please double check the numbers. What else? Number three, and you can only do this if you read the contract, make sure the basic things are covered. Does it really capture what you talked about when you were in that room? Or is it all just a bunch of long run-on sentences that you can't understand and the ball seems to be lost in the weeds? But aren't most contracts long run-on sentences? <laughs> I mean, really? If you have a good attorney, they should be able to draft a contract <laughs> that, that uh, has sentence breaks. Okay, I just had to fit that in there. Okay. <laughs> so make sure the basics are covered and that what you talked about when you were negotiating is in the contract. And if there's something in there you don't understand, if there is a long run-on sentence, um, you can sometimes even ask the other side, what does this sentence mean? When we were in the meeting, we talked about X, but this sentence to me is saying Y and Z. Can you explain to me what that means? Help, don't be afraid to look stupid. Help me understand is a great sentence starter, right? Yes, definitely. Okay. Now, that being said, run-on sentences and seven-syllable words notwithstanding, there probably are some problem provisions that you need to look out for. So what are they? Okay, well, let's talk about a few provisions that you should read very carefully and go to thelawdictionary.org to help you understand even better. Um, one is a provision, if you see the words in there, indemnification or hold harmless or release, Make sure that you read that provision and try your best to understand it. An indemnification provision oftentimes means that if the business gets sued by a third party because of something you did or because of the contract you had with the company, you agree to pay the company's legal bills. You're holding the bag. Yes, exactly. So if, especially, you know, if it's a two-way street if the indemnification provision is mutual and they're also going to indemnify you if you get sued over something that the company did perhaps that's reasonable 
But if it's just a one-way indemnification provision where you're going to pay their legal bills if they get sued, I don't know. Be wary of that. That's, that's not great. That's some liability exposure. Similar to that is hold harmless and has a very similar meaning to indemnification. I won't dive into the nuances of the difference between those two terms, but there are. And if you need to know them, you probably at that point have to hire an attorney. Watch out for provisions where you're granting them a license to use your likeness or content that features you or something that you own. Watch out to see, you know, can they assign it to anybody they want? Oh. Do you want them to do that? Can they sublicense it to anybody? You might not want that. So watch out for those provisions where they're using something that's personal to you. And how are they using it? A well-written license agreement is going to lay out the different ways that they're allowed to use that. And if it's not what you talked about in negotiations, if you said, I, I didn't want this on social media, I only wanted it on your company website, make sure that it says that. So what I'm hearing you say is specificity, being very specific about that, that's your friend. Yes. Yes. And again, oftentimes they're going to have drafted it. And so you're just going to be reading it and commenting on it. But make sure, you know, that you dive into the weeds with them unless you have an attorney helping you. But if you don't, make sure you go there. Okay, so what else? Watch out for a provision that talks about non-disparagement. So what non-disparagement means is that you'll never say anything negative about the business or anybody associated with the business or any business affiliated with that business. Do you really want your mouth to be silenced in that way? What if later on the business is discovered to be doing some horrible business practice and there's a media storm about it and your followers reach out to you and they want to know why, why did you partner with a business like that? You, you want to be able to respond to them and explain to them. So if there's some sort of clause in there that limits what you can say, a non-disparagement clause or a confidentiality clause or a non-disclosure clause, Read them carefully and make sure you're okay with that. Okay. What are some other ideas that folks need to take a look at? Or what are some other terms that people need to take a look at and perhaps investigate further if they see that in their contracts? Yes. Well, one's exclusivity. And I think most people know what that is. But it it means that you're going to only work with that company for a specified period of time. Watch out for that in the contract because you probably need to be working with multiple companies in overlapping times in order to make your ends meet. So watch out for that. Watch out for something that says you have to give them a right of first offer on your future deals or you have to bring business opportunities that you have to them. This, if the contract just relates to a one-time exchange, watch for those kind of ties that reach into the future and obligate you to be doing things in the future. Another thing to give a close read is parts where you talk about who owns what. You want to make sure that if they're just using your blog post, that they don't take ownership of it. You're actually the owner of that blog post and you license them to use it. Now, if you're creating content together and they're paying you for that content, the deal is probably that they own that content and that would be appropriate. But if it's content that pre-exists your relationship with the company, maybe you have some photographs or videos or an ebook. Make sure that it says you continue to own the content and you're just licensing to them the right to use it. I imagine that this isn't the first time that you've heard what I'm about to tell you. But what would you tell someone who comes to you and says, but I was negotiating with this business and they said that 
their contracts can't be negotiated, that they are what they are, and it's take it or leave it. There's no such thing as negotiation with them. What would you tell that person? I would say to them, all contracts (laughs) (laughs) can be negotiated in my experience. But, you know, there are some contracts, you know, to use Facebook. We all agree to their terms of use and we don't negotiate them. Well, the contracts that you're entering into with these businesses aren't like that. They're specific to the event that's happening with you or the partnership that they're having with you. And that's the type of contract that should be negotiable. So if they're telling you, this is it, take it or leave it, well, then that's kind of back to the red flags in negotiation. It's another red flag. This is somebody who's just going to make you do whatever it is they want you to do and not compromise with you at all so that you can continue to earn your livelihood and achieve your goals. They're a partner, not an employer. Exactly. And it comes down and, to it, right? And they don't want to be an employer because they want to pay you independent contractor <laughs> wages. Right. <laughs> so let's touch on just a couple more problematic provisions you before we leave that. We should talk about waivers and releases of liability. So if they want you to waive legal rights that you have in advance by signing a contract, pay attention to that. You might not want to be waiving those rights. You might want to keep them. If there's a release of liability, they want you to release some sort of liability, something they might owe to you in advance, pay attention to that. Read it carefully. It's not customary in the type of contracts that you're typically entering into. Now, I can't say that across the board. It depends on the details of the deal that you're doing, but you don't want to give up legal rights that you have in a contract and you're giving up those legal rights in the future. And those are typically in provisions where there's a waiver or a release of liability. All right. We have gone through a lot of detail. We've covered a lot regarding business on the gram. So, Annie Robertson, let's bring all this together. For folks who have listened to this, whether you're listening to it on JDSALaw.com, on Instagram, and elsewhere, what would you like our listeners to take away from this conversation? What are the most important points? All right. Top three takeaways. The first Uh, Maybe the most important is to have confidence in yourself and your ability to be a business person. I believe that you can understand that contract and that you can negotiate that deal and that you can watch how other business people are acting and replicate that. Number two, read your contracts. (laughs) Read your (laughs) contracts. You knew it was going to be on there, didn't you? Read your contracts and double check the numbers. And... Number three, make sure that the business that you're partnering with is reputable and somebody that you want to be aligned with. Preserve your long-term value. Because, again, your brand is your authenticity. You don't want to give that away for any amount of money. That's right. Annie Robertson, you've given us a lot to think about and a lot of great tips. Certainly appreciate it, and it's always great talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show and letting me use your platform to get a little bit more information out there to people. I see what you did there using our platform. And thank you for joining us for this episode of JDSA's Law Talk. Remember, if you have a legal matter and require solid legal advice, connect with a member of the JDSA Law team at JDSALaw.com. You can also hear Law Talk episodes on other topics and submit your questions or suggestions for a future show. I'm your host, Clint Strand. Thanks again for joining us on JDSA's Law Talk. You've been listening to JDSA's Law Talk. Topics covered in this program are for informational purposes only and are not intended to be professional advice. Before making any legal decision, seek the advice of a relevant professional. 
to ask a question? Arrange a meeting with a JDSA attorney and find Law Talk episodes on other topics. Connect with us at JDSALaw.com. Thanks again for joining us on JDSA's Law Talk.